Hey everyone, welcome to the Product Startup Podcast, a podcast that helps bring your product idea to life by chatting with successful inventors, product designers, and other industry professionals. This podcast is run by Macro Design and Invent and hosted by Philip Belecha. Our goal here is to get to the bottom of what makes a product successful, from initial idea to putting your product on the shelf. We're taking you step-by-step step to build a functional product and scale your product business. Now onto the show. The Product Startup, Episode 13. Welcome to the Product Startup Podcast, helping you turn ideas into successful products step-by-step with your host, Philip Valitza. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Product Startup Podcast. In the last episode, I did a highlights reel where I compiled their top tips from other product founders. We've had a lot of new listeners join since I started the podcast back in March, and I wanted to create a quick recap or highlights episode to cover the most important points other product founders have shared with us. So mainly we talked about the different ways each founder has validated their ideas and confirmed that there was a market. That's probably the number one email question that I get. And two, we talked about each founder's best tips for bringing a product to market. So if you're stuck or you have an idea and don't know what comes next, I recommend that you listen to this episode to help you take that next step. So now onto the show. In today's episode, I'm joined by Kelly Costello. She's the owner and founder of Puppy Cake. You may have seen her on Shark Tank. She created an all-natural cake mix product for dogs back in November 2007, and it quickly became the number one selling cake mix for dogs in the U.S. She sells both direct and wholesale, and we talked about how to lower the barrier entry to get either customer to buy. We also go over the importance of creating new products instead of just adding new versions of the same thing. And she shared with us a mistake that she made working with a large customer that almost put Puppy Cake out of business. Kelly has really great energy and she's super transparent about her nine years of ups and downs to get where she is today. So I know you'll be able to put some of her advice to practice right away. So let's get started. Hi, Kelly. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. Um... We were manufacturing our maple bacon ice cream today, and uh, at the end of the day, one of our machines broke down, so the Uh-oh. day has uh, not quite ended yet, so we're still working on that little issue. Well, hopefully we can, after we get off the interview, you can uh, go and wrap that up. So why don't you tell everybody a little bit about Puppy Cake and how you created it or how you started so Puppy Cake manufactures specialty dog treats, and our best-selling products are the Cake Mix for Dogs and Ice Cream Mix for Dogs. And the Cake Mix for Dogs was the product that I displayed on Shark Tank in Season 3. And since then, we launched a Cookie Mix for Dogs, Puptato Chips, Jello for Dogs. And then the second most best-selling product I have is the Ice Cream Mix for Dogs. And when I launched that, it essentially doubled my business. Wow, that's amazing. So I do want to get into all those products at some point, but maybe we can take a step back to your very first experience when you said, you know what, I want to commercialize this. There's a lot of people that take recipes and play around in their kitchens and say, okay, I'm going to make this for my dog or my friends or maybe even the local kennel and nonprofit. Um, What gave you that spark to say that now you're going to scale it and create a product that you can sell nationally? Um, so I was working for a sales and marketing firm, and one of my clients was Smuckers, who owns Pillsbury Baking Mixes. And I was looking at their cake mix advertisements like all day, and I thought, oh, wouldn't that be great if they made that for dogs? 
And that was kind of my light bulb moment. I wasn't really that happy with my job at the time. And I think I was really looking for a new direction. And so once I had that bug, like I couldn't stop thinking about it. And that was the end of July when I came up with the idea. And by mid-November, I actually had a website product that was ready for the shelves and had my first sale. And so to turn the idea into a product, first thing I did was research canine nutrition and figure out how can I make a cake for dogs. So that's pretty smart because you didn't, it's not like you came in from a particular background. You weren't a vet. Uh, Did you have any cooking experience prior or were you doing treats and baking things for other people before? Not particularly. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the book E-Myth, which is a really, okay. So it's a very popular book for new entrepreneurs and I highly recommend um, any entrepreneur at any stage read it. And uh, it talks about how people who go into business, like a plumber who goes into business to be, to have a plumbing business, he then learns he does 10% plumbing and 90% running a business. So I was not part, I wasn't really a baker, um, or was someone who spent hours in the kitchen baking. Um, so cake mix is actually kind of fit me better because that's what I prefer to use anyways. So, but the baking and the, uh, manufacturing part of it, it's not really what drove me to do it. It's more, I wanted to be in business. Very cool. And you saw a need that was being unmet and you decided, you know what, I'm just going to chase this and see how far it goes. Yeah. I did check to see if I had any competition checked on Amazon. Um, so this was back in 2007. Amazon wasn't quite as big as it is now, but uh, searched all over the internet for any kind of cake mix for dogs. And I found one potential competitor and I ordered it and it was just had no icing packet, um, terrible packaging, only one flavor. And it was really expensive. I'm like, okay, I can do this better. So that, that, that was my green light. Like there is a market for it. And I can do it better than what's currently available. So what did it taste like? I didn't. (laughs) You know what? I actually like when I got it, like I just, the packaging was so lame. I wasn't even motivated to want to make it. Wow. I was like, just a cake. So you don't even get the icing and it was just sad. Yeah, it was sad. (laughs) (laughs) So from July to November, then you said you were able to even get a product launched at the end of November. Yes. And a website. Wow. That's amazing. So were you working with a co-packer or did you just create, start creating mixes yourself and ship out of your home or how did that work? So I've always done all of our manufacturing in-house. And at that time it was literally in my kitchen and, um, putting it together with a KitchenAid mixer, you know, like those ones that you get it for a wedding present right? and mix that at home. And the, the biggest challenge I had once I had developed the recipe, because I mean, that was, that was quite a lot of effort to understand, am I providing a healthy product and to find the data to support that was finding a company that was willing to make boxes for me on, but only make like a thousand of each flavor. Right. Without paying $2 each or something. Well, I ended up paying a dollar 10 each. I mean, that's yeah, yeah. so expensive. I mean, now we're paying significantly less than that. And we, it keeps getting better, you know, the higher the volume. Of course. But so I ended up paying like a dollar ten a box because I thought to myself, well, what if I'm wrong? You can be so passionate about something and then find out you're wrong. So whenever I talk to other entrepreneurs, I tell them, do not invest more in the first year 
than you are willing to never see again. So don't invest $30,000 that was supposed to be for your retirement or for your child's education if, because those are things that you may never see. And the reality is a lot of businesses fail. And I've talked to other businesses that unfortunately did fail because um, there just wasn't a market for it. And sometimes you can be so passionate about something, but you might be the only one. Right. Yeah. You, other people don't feel the same way. I appreciate you sharing that. I think the probably the number one and two question that I get is, you know, I have this idea, what step do I take next? And then the next question is, well, I have this prototype and how do I solicit some wealthy investor to sponsor me? And my answer to that is, well, you know, if you had a market, you probably wouldn't need that wealthy investor because people would be kicking down your door to buy your product. And somehow you would find that money or you would be able to make it work. I think people are trapped in this mindset that they need thirty, fifty, hundred thousand dollars $100,000 before they can even start doing anything. And so it's, yeah. it's really great to hear that you were able to do that just on a shoestring. I think it, I spent just to get the product launched because I tried to do things as cheaply as possible because I was thinking I could be wrong. Sure. And so yeah. I did, uh, I got a, the, I paid a thousand dollars for puppycake.com. And then uh, the boxes end up costing me about $2,500. And then the ingredients were like, and the baking ingredients are very cheap and readily sure. available. So I probably spent three or $400 on that. So less than $5,000 just um, to get yes, it going. less than $5,000 to launch it and to Excellent. sort of get that proof of concept. How are people reacting to it? Am I seeing reorders? Um, just trying to get a, to figure out like, is this a business? That's excellent. And I think that there's, for, for what I did, it wasn't, it didn't require that much money to launch it. Now, someone who's doing something that requires like, molds and things like that. I mean, that is really like, do your homework. That's why I tell every hour that you spend uh, planning out your business is going to equal probably one month faster getting to profitability. The more time you spend planning your business before you spend a dime, you will get so much more out and yeah. figure out who your market is. It's true. And maybe planning for some of the contingencies or some of the uh, alternate ways of doing something if, uh, um, because there's certainly more than one way to go to production on almost any product. Mm -hmm. so, no, that's fascinating. I think there's also the other side. This is my uh, Achilles heel, I guess, is I'm an engineer. I'm very detail oriented and I can get lost in that detail and in the planning. And at some point you have to take that action. So I guess there was some point where it just clicked for you and you said, you know what, I've done enough and now I just need to do it. Like what, was there any impetus to say go or did you just say, okay, you know what? I have this $5,000 that I'm willing to risk and let's see how far it will take me. I had just this burning passion. I couldn't, I couldn't ignore it. I had to know whether or not I was right or if I was wrong. Like, do I really have a business here? Can I make a living doing this? Now, looking back, I was very naive as to. Um, we all how are. I think. <laughs> so true. I, you know, coming from having clients like Smuckers and you see like the Nielsen data that shows you how many units are moving per store, that's the mentality that I had going into it. And I truly believed that we would be pacing at a million dollars after the first year. And when I think back on that, I laugh. I mean, I, that's just completely ridiculous. I had no idea how I was going to scale the business from my kitchen to a million dollars a year. And I, di I didn't spend the time thinking about that. Well, but you know, that's a common misconception. I think a lot of the 
business plans that I look at as an advisor for a local business plan competition, they'll start and say, well, the market is X and we're going to enter the market with 1% market share. <laughs> right. And you say, okay, how, like how, what led you to that, to that 1%? And they're just kind of making an assumption and then going off of those numbers and their entire plan is based on hitting that 1%. So I can totally see how there's so many dog lovers in the U.S. X percent give them treats. There's no other alternatives out there on Amazon. I bet I can, you know, get 50% of the market or whatever it is, you know? I mean, that sounds really good. Sounded really good. I have learned that you really have to spend the time imagining how is this going to go? Okay, so I have my product. Like, let's say um, the cake mix for dogs. Okay, so I have my cake mix for dogs. What's my price point going to be? How did I come to that conclusion that the price point should be $6.99? Okay, so you need to have data behind that, answer that question. Who is going to buy that? And a lot of times when I talk to um, entrepreneurs who are young, I say, who is your market? And they start saying, well, we think it'll be blah, 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 and women who are da-da-da. And I stop and I go, okay, so you're telling me you don't know who your market is. That's the first thing you need to do. Because why spend a dollar on marketing if you don't know who you're marketing to? Or it's a really broad range, you know, men and women from 24 to 54. (laughs) Figure out, because you have very little dollars when you start a business. Figure out what market can you make the most money in. And what we found was women who own dogs before they have children. And so we hit that market because that was the the low-hanging fruit. And when you're small... You just need to get the cash in. You, you need to build a market. Like, don't be like, we got to get everybody. No, just go who is like the easiest one. When you put a dollar into marketing to that customer, you get more than a dollar out. Right. Yeah. What's your highest chance of conversion with what audience? That's really interesting. Do not have children. How did you get to that final point? So after uh, we had been on the market for like two months and I had uh, a couple hundred customers at that point. I did a survey and offered them a gift certificate to a, um, a well-known retail, pet retail, like PetSmart or Petco. And um, we got quite a few participants. I was very, very happy to have gotten this many participants. And I have a marketing background, so I felt confident in creating a 10-question 10, 10 uh, survey that would not have leading questions or biased questions. And so that's how we found out that, like, wow, there's, like, no men buying our product. And they're all women. And, and I started looking at the age group. I'm like, these, this is definitely women who either haven't had children yet or are empty nesters. But because we are doing a more technology-driven marketing plan, because all we had was stuff on our website, we focused on the younger demographic because they were easier to get to. Kudos to asking questions that weren't leading questions because that's the second thing people will usually do. is say, here, I've made this widget or I have this idea. Don't you like it? Yes, no. <laughs> right right and everyone says yes and you're like "Woo, i'm going yeah winner <laughs> you know and also congratulations two three hundred customers a couple months out of the gate that's amazing uh that that really says something to your product that really means that you've tapped into something i think yeah and then um i started to try to figure out okay how can we increase our conversion rate and what is consumer behavior so Um, I'm really big on educating yourself. So one of the books I read was Don't Make Me Think and tried to optimize our website. And then I remember talking to a friend who was saying, um, if something offers me free shipping, I am much more motivated to buy it if I can get free shipping. 
So I said, okay, well, Amazon, like, let's not reinvent the wheel. Here's a very successful company, amazon.com. And their free shipping threshold at the time was $25. So we offered free shipping on orders of $25 or more. Our average order size went from $11 to $27 overnight. Yes. Awesome. So it's like little things like that of just trying to understand the market, understanding consumer behavior can have major impacts. So we ho- focus heavily on getting consumers because getting into the retail game is a very different animal than just selling to people on amazon.com or our website, puppycake.com. So we just try to get that low hanging fruit of consumers, high profit margin, and just keep getting the base. Plus they'll go into stores and say like, Hey, I really like this product. We add it. So once we started pursuing the wholesale market, I got a whole new education. Um, the wholesale market is a very different animal. Retailers expect to make a certain amount of points on when I say points, I mean percentage. So they expect to make a certain percent off of the product. So like if the final price is $6.99 and I, and uh, wholesale prices are close regarded secrets, but they expect to make a certain percentage off of that $6.99 that goes across their register. And so whenever I first started selling it, I didn't know how many units a, a typical independent retailer, pet store retailer would go through. So we had case sizes of like, 84 for one flavor and thankfully one of the retailers like could recognize that we were new to the game and she gave me a brief education she said these case sizes are way too high like we need you to get a little bit lower i'm like oh okay so what what is a typical case size they're like 12 i was like 12 okay so again i had two SKUs then so what we did to eliminate one of the barriers of entry is um shipping is a barrier of entry for retailers and minimum order is a barrier for retailers. So we did an assorted case of 12. So six banana and six carrot with free shipping. And we still made money off of it. And we got our, our product into stores. And I tried to stick with that uh, mentality and that, that kind of plan for a while. And it really, it was okay, but not good enough. Because as we added more products, I learned that if I sell in eaches, I, I open the door to even more retailers because now... There's even fewer barriers. They can literally try one red velvet cake mix, one banana cake mix. I want four of the maple bacon ice cream and four of the peanut butter ice cream, and I still get free shipping. So I get the product into their store with a a small like $50 order, but then I always get reorders. So if that barrier of entry is trying it and they want to spend very little money to try it, we we package our products so that it's easy for retailers to get into the store. And I've talked to other companies um, like uh, Bowser Beer, and I know the owner there. We were acquaintances. Um, we spoke a few spoke a few times on the phone, and she has asked me like, "How can you afford to do free shipping?" I said, "Well, I'm selling them dir- directly." Uh, the extra effort it takes for a retailer to go to my website and place an order, or call me up and place an order, versus pulling out the catalog from their local distributor and checking, check, 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 spending two hours on their entire store. If they order just from one distributor, I'm asking them to order directly from me. So they have to call me or they have to go to my website and spend extra time. And so their motivation for doing that is they're going to get a good price um, and free shipping. So that's why we offer free shipping because it's the only way to grow this business. And it has worked really well for us. So our, we have free shipping for orders of $50 or more for, retailers and we sell in eaches 
and it just makes it so easy to get our products into a store. Just try it. That's all we're trying to say. Just try it. And all we're asking you to do is spend 50 bucks. Wow. So good on you for getting into stores. That's usually a really hard step to take. I'm going to take a few steps back. You just covered a whole lot of material that I think is really, is really interesting. So started talking about the margin that retailers like to see. I've, in my experience with products, people like to see 25 to 50% margin. I'm not sure what it is like in food. Is that the rough range or? Well, pet products, it's um, higher than food. Okay. Grocery store margins are really, really slim, right? Um, so I think it, I guess it just, what you're saying is it depends on the industry. There is no yeah. rough. So if you're a, if you're trying to create a product and you need to, you've created the price first because you want to see if you can compete at that price point, what's a good rule of thumb to say that you need to keep all your costs down to in your case, specifically, you're not using a distributor. So that gives you that allowance, I guess, to, like you said, you're able to come in at a lower price for wholesale, but is there a rough number? Your costs, like including your labor and always include your labor, should be 25% of your retail price. Regardless if you're using a distributor or not. Yes. And if you can't get those margins, there really is no point in going into business. You'll, I know everyone thinks it's not going to happen to them, that they're not going to be the, the company that goes bankrupt or fails, but it happens all the time. It's like 90% of businesses failed in the first five years or first three years. I mean, it's very high. It's very hard to get to that five-year mark. That number that you threw out, that 25% is in line with, I've got a couple products in Amazon as private labeling products. Mm -hmm. And so our landed cost for a lot of those is 25%-ish because Amazon will definitely take a hefty cut. Yeah. Amazon <laughs> basically is like, even there's, if you're using fulfillment by Amazon, it's as if you're selling to Amazon because they basically take a little over 50% of the MSRP. Yep. Just like similar to what you, if you're selling wholesale. It's actually, yeah, it's really high on lower price products, less than $10 products. I'm not even sure how people make money on because Amazon takes like a $6 cut on a $10 product. Yeah. It's, it's quite, quite high on fees. Yeah. Like you said, you know, people want that convenience and they have prime memberships and they want stuff in two days. So that's interesting. Do you have an Amazon presence? Yeah, we do. Actually, we sell a lot on Amazon. So uh, I had originally just sold on Amazon, not used to fill by Amazon. And then I thought, well, I was a Prime member. I was like, well, I mean, I buy so much stuff if it says Prime versus, you know, selling, buying it directly from the manufacturer or the seller. So I said, well, let me try this. And you know, it, the, the first time that you do it, it kind of hurts your head. There's just so many forms and it doesn't really make sense. And it's hard to understand. There's no one to talk to. So I think I spent like two hours the first time when I sent in one case. Only two hours. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because it is, it's a mess and you, it's really hard to get customer support and, um, and they do yeah. take up a lot of, in fees and it makes you think it's like, is this really the direction that I want to go with it? But it's so um, worth it because we went from, oh gosh, it was probably a couple hundred dollars to $300 on Amazon to now, uh, thousands nice. every awesome. month. It's great. So, and just the switch from uh, selling on Amazon but not using fulfillment by Amazon to using fulfillment by Amazon, we went from like $150 to $300 a month to $1,600 a month overnight. Nice. I mean, I'm not kidding, like overnight. The next great. month is completely different. Great. No, that's great. 
part of their large fee is fulfilling orders for you and packing and placing things. And so in a, you've kind of extended the size of your team. Uh, you pay dearly for that. But I guess that's one part of the business that you don't really have to deal with as much other than just keeping inventory stocked. Yeah. I mean, we're getting, we sell so much Amazon. We're getting to the point where we will actually be, you know, Amazon requires special UBC codes for their inventory. We're getting to the point where it's making sense for us to have special, like have our red velvet and our peanut butter cake mix have the special Amazon UPC code so that we can save that step that my employees are currently doing where they have to apply a label. Yeah. So you have packaging dedicated to Amazon, for example. Yeah. Great. We send them a lot. Some people might be hesitant to say, gosh, now you are selling in at least three channels that we've talked about online through your site, online through Amazon. Uh, direct to wholesale. Uh, obviously, the margins vary uh, to, to each channel. Is it worth it to have to deal with all three uh, distribution networks? Are you getting enough margin to justify the third channel or fourth channel? I think so. I mean, I think the way to grow a wealthy company is that you need to be making money in lots of different places. Not to the point where you're stretching yourself thin, so there's kind of like a happy medium that you mm -hmm. have to come to. Mm -hmm. But if you're making money and it doesn't cost you a ton of time or resources, like some of the things that I've considered launching, like we would have made money, but they would have taken up so much production hours here at the warehouse. And we only have so many production hours every month that it didn't justify launching that particular product. Like we were thinking about launching a, a shelf stable cake. So like we've got the cake mixes and then we're going to have a shelf stable cake where the person who didn't want to spend the time baking could just you know spend a couple, spend a couple more dollars and take something home, but when we sat down and thought about the logistics, it was going to require so many man hours here and so much square footage every month that it did not justify its existence. It was going to impede on our other manufacturing capabilities, and even though we would have been making money off of it, the intangible costs were way too high for us to launch our product. Yeah, and that would have been a pretty big step chain. So can you kind of discuss how you made the decision to go from the cake mix to your ice creams? And did you just expand laterally with cake mix and say, okay, we're going to cover all these flavors first and then go into ice cream? Or what was the thought process there? How did you decide that, you know what, ice cream's it? Well, a colleague that I respect a lot, and he's retired now, um, he had told me that just adding flavors isn't really adding a skew. Like, yeah, you're adding a UPC, but you're really not adding a product. He said, you need to add products and diversify your portfolio. And something that Lori Grenier also told me when I was on Shark Tank, she's like, you need to have a line of products. And then my colleague had differentiated, like product means something other than what you're making right now, even though it's a different flavor. So the way I came up with the ice cream was that, um, I originally, I, I knew our sales dipped a lot in the summertime. So I see during baking season, baking season is typically when it's cold outside and you don't mind turning on your oven. So that's baking season. So um, September through March is, is baking season. It dips quite a bit in January as most companies sales dip in January. So from April through August, I mean, it's like, it was like crickets around here just barely selling anything. And I was like, I need a cold, I need a summer product, something that's cold. So the first thing I launched was this Jello for dogs. And Jello has benefits like uh, it's good for brain health, good for joint health. And it was fine. It makes us money. We still have it on and we're not going to get rid of it. 
but it didn't fill that hole. So then the next summer, I think it was like July, and I was in here thinking like, man, I wish that we could do ice cream. But logistically, that's a nightmare. We can't do ice cream. I'm like, it would be great if we get an ice cream mix. I'm like, wait a second. We already deal with yogurt powder. I bet you they make whole milk powder. I was like, what's ice cream? It's basically milk fat and sugar. Like, I mean, I mean, why couldn't we do that? Where all you have to do is add water. So that was in July. And by and six weeks later, we launched the Puppy Scoops peanut butter first flavor. We kind of did it on a shoestring budget. Again, let's have proof of concept before we invest thousands. We did like our labels didn't even wrap all the way around the container. It was just like, because to get a label that wrapped all around the container, you had to get a die cut label and then you had to buy 10,000. Yep. So like these yep. are the things I deal with all the time at this level. Like how can we do this cheaply and still actually look decent? So we, we bought white ice cream containers. Um, and then we had labels that only went halfway around and then actually printed in-house the top label. So launched it in August and like huge response. Like, okay, this is a product that has legs. Now let's launch three more flavors. So then we launched carob, maple bacon, and vanilla. That's amazing. So then we went to the Global Pen Expo in March, which is the largest trade show in the United States. And it's a closed trade show. It's only for people in the industry. And uh, Puppy Scoops got second place for best new natural product. That's amazing. Congratulations. That's awesome. Thank you. And like I said, like when we launched a Puppy Scoops ice cream mix, it literally doubled our sales. So in July, we had a little party in the warehouse where me and the employees celebrated surpassing last year's sales. That's awesome. And so we ended up more than doubling by the end of the calendar year. Did you eat some of the food? I've, I've tried all of it. Yeah. I've I mean, tried it's, it, everything that, I mean, I, I would imagine everything that you have is something that people could eat, not that they would want to, but it's, it's has all natural ingredients. Um, I'm starting to think that there might be a potential market for powdered ice cream mix for really remote areas. Like as long as you have a freezer, this has a nine month shelf life when it's dry and then at least six weeks in the freezer. So like Island countries where it's really hard to get ice cream. I mean, this is, this is something that, that, could possibly do it, but we're not set up for human consumption. So I'm just going to stick with the market that I'm good at right now. That's that's dog products. Oh, and great. And you touched on a couple of things that I want to, I keep having to pull you back. I know you're, you're covering all this great knowledge, but I've got all these kind of side questions. Uh, so when you say you launched a product, what does that mean? Did you go to your existing customers and say, Hey, check it out. We're making ice cream now. Or was there another type of marketing push? Okay. So whenever I launch a product, um, I have the recipe. I have the artwork done and I have, and so then I, I get whatever it takes to physically have a product with a UPC code that's scannable and ready to go into a retail setting. So once I have that, and I've learned the lesson, don't pre-launch something, like only launch it when you can actually ship it. That's just from my personal experience. That's contrary to what Tim Ferriss says on the four hour work week, just go ahead and put up a website with a buy now page that doesn't really go anywhere and flood it with traffic. And through that, you'll be able to tell if people want to buy your product, if they hit the buy now button, you say, sorry, it's not available now, but then you'll, you'll be able to count how many clicks there are versus people that hit your page. And it was a, a low cost way of testing whether a product would work or not. And what I'm hearing from you is that that's not the, the way that you did it. Well, for us, uh, going back to how we offer free shipping to wholesalers, when we highly value having good customer service. We want our retailers and our consumers to have a great experience with us and feel very confident 
and we're going to take care of you. If UPS runs over your package, you're going to be getting stuff sent to you right away, plus some things for you to try. Like we really want to take care of our customers. So when we launched the Care of Chip Cookie Mix in spring of 2014, um, we took pre-orders. But the problem with that is that we would ship most of their order and then pay to ship the Care of Chip Cookie Mix. And so we had all these orders we had to just hold because they had ordered Care of Chip Cookie Mix, but we didn't have it in stock yet. So it created kind of a logistical nightmare here where we had to just have this big pile of orders with highlighted carob chip cookie mix and then we end up having to pay double shipping so that's why i at puppy cake we at puppy cake do not allow customers to order things before they're ready no that makes sense once we for like ice cream i got my packaging i've got my product i've tested it on multiple dogs and like uh checked on the shelf life and shipped it to myself to see how it goes so when I launch, I send an e-blast to all of my retailers. I send an e-blast to all of our consumers. Um, we, we put on Amazon and get stock in there. We start asking bloggers to review it and put link back to our site. And we ask people to review the products and start getting some reviews on Amazon. And then a lot of times we'll do a postcard that's direct to retailers because mail still is very effective. Um, I love sending postcards. I put a dollar into sending out postcards. I get a dollar 25 back just right away. And then I get new customers so that, you know, it has exponential, uh, benefits for the rest of the year where I'm making money off of that new customer. Do you find that snail mail works better for certain customers and others, a wholesale better than retail or. I haven't personally tried to do snail mail for consumers. Um, but for retail, I find that it's very effective. The store owner of an independent pet store is a very mixed bag uh but it's usually more middle age and it's it's common that you don't forget about and you can put on your refrigerator versus getting an email where we're inundated with emails every time so like we like to have a really good tagline like so for ice cream postcard which has been very effective and has a good sales lift and gets us new customers it says freezerless ice cream and like that usually catches retailers like, attention yeah what do you mean by that possible right and then it says the consumer adds water and freezes at home okay so one of the things that surprised us about the popularity of the ice cream mix was that retailers love it because it does not take up valuable freezer space in grocery stores and all stores the freezer section it's a very expensive section and you have to justify that, you know, two by four inch space that you take up in there and you need to be making a lot of money because it is expensive. It's expensive to maintain. It's expensive to ship there. So you have to justify your existence. So if they can take a product out of there. They can still offer ice cream, but it's not in the freezer and put something expensive in there that makes some good margins like raw dog food, which is very popular right now. Sure. It's a win. Right. Consumers see the treats, see the ice cream in the treat section or at the counter where it's an impulse buy and the expensive raw dog food is they can take, we'll put one more brand in there because they no longer have ice cream taking up space in there anymore. Well, and the shipping costs for you are lower too. The, yes. The so water they're weight. Making, they're making better profit margins. We don't have to ship it in a refrigerated truck. We don't have to ship it with dry ice. It's, and we can offer them free shipping. So it's just like, sign me up. It's Amazing. like the easy sale. It's great. That sounds really exciting. 
Um, and so you mentioned that you didn't want to really go into people food because of the regulations. Are there any regulations around pet food? That you yeah, have- the, pet, the pet food industry is fairly regulated. We are inspected regularly by the Department of Agriculture here in Pennsylvania. Um, we're registered in all the states we sell in at the Department of Agriculture in each individual state. And the FDA has some regulations on like labeling and uh, how you're supposed to um, maintain your facilities. So it is fairly regulated, but it is not nearly as regulated as hum- like stuff for human consumption. Sure. So it was a relatively a lower barrier entry than making people food um, yeah. and an untapped market. And so that was a good recipe. Can you talk about anything that might be coming up that you're working on? Yeah, actually, we are working on something that's like a complete 180 from what we're currently manufacturing. We want to launch a jogging leash. And we've got a couple of prototypes that we're testing out now for quality and strength and durability. Um, It is a coiled leash that you wrap around your wrist instead of holding with your hand and just hook it onto your dog and jog. And if the dog goes a little bit behind or goes a little bit in front or goes a little side. It doesn't matter because it never goes under their legs since it's coiled like a foam cord. So Mm -hmm. as they move, it stretches. It's like low impact on your body because you don't have that jerking motion. Um, I'm pretty excited about it. We're calling it the air leash. Nice. Because it makes the connection between your dog feel like air. So um, we may be able to get in for Christmas, but uh, we pretty much would have to pull the trigger in on that one in the next two weeks. And I'm going to Vegas at super zoo. It's another trade show. And, uh, I don't think we're going to be, I don't want to rush this basically. So we're going to be launching it next spring for sure. Great. And that answers another question. Is it better to have the right timing and not the right product? Or do you want to get everything perfect before you launch? Yeah. I, I I don't think that you should have, what do they say? Great is the enemy of good or something. Yep, or yep. Something like that. Um, I, I don't want to be so obsessive over like everything. All the marketing materials have to be right. But I think having the product right is very important. Like with our dog treats and everything, because if you start racking up bad reviews, it's really hard to come back from that. You know, if your marketing material looks kind of lame, okay, it looks kind of lame. Change it and put some new stuff. But if I put out a leash that breaks after two weeks, I mean, I, you can't come back from that. Absolutely. So I'd say heavily focus on the quality of the product. And then second to that would be being able to deliver that product. So like have a pretty good idea of how you're going to manufacture that at a higher scale when you're at launch. Yeah. All, all good advice. So you mentioned this is another trade show that you're going to. I personally love trade shows because you get to scope out what the competition is, plus maybe talk to some suppliers and distributors and meet some customers. Can you kind of talk about your experiences at trade shows and when did you first start going to them and why do you think they're a good use of your time? I think trade shows are fantastic. Um, There's a couple caveats to that though. I didn't start going to trade shows until 2012 just because I couldn't afford them. Um, I spend over $5,000 on every trade show I go to. And the first trade show I went to costs a little bit more than that because I had to buy a booth kit and pay a designer to design that. But even though I'm putting in $5,000 to these trade shows, I get it all back because you get to meet customers face to face and get that time. And every time you go, 
uh, distributors and retailers see like, okay, they're still here. So obviously there's something that's okay. And I can't tell you how many times I have retailers come up to, come up to me and say like, yeah, I've seen you a couple of times and I, I finally, you know, wanted to make, wanted to talk to you about your products or I'll send them like three or four postcards and they finally walk up to me at the global pet expo in Orlando and say like, okay, I've gotten three of your postcards and I wanted to talk to you about your products. I'm like, okay, well, great. Let me, let me tell you how our products can help you make money and keep customers happy. So trade shows are fabulous, but you really do have to put time into it. It's worth it to spend the $1,000 to $2,000 on a booth kit. Because if you look janky, you could have a great product, but your the perception that people have is that you don't know what you're doing yep. and that you aren't going to be offering a high-quality product or good customer service. No, it's very true what you said where if you, you have to go, you show up several times in order for people to get a feeling that you're going to stick around because especially your wholesale customers, I'm sure they're not going to try to take the chance on a product that's they're not going to be able to carry again. You know, their customers might like it and you won't be around next season. Why should they invest the shelf space or the energy to order something? Exactly. Very good points. And I had more than one colleague tell me who are, who are more mature in business than me had told me that they said you got to be here you just got to keep showing up just keep showing up and you'll be surprised eventually just like the floodgates open and for us that did happen like uh last spring is whenever puppy cake really hit the stride and everything since then has been easy just it's uh we can count on a certain number of sales the profit margins are there and the, the customers are there we got a good solid growth and so it finally got easy for us last spring Good. Good. Congratulations. And I, I actually expected it to get easier on you before now. You've been at it since 2007. Well, you started mm -hmm. end of 2007. And so now this is actually a common theme in the last few guests that we've had have said it's taken them five or six years, even though they've been on Shark Tank, to get to the point now where they're growing faster organically. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, I really made a lot of mistakes. I just didn't really know what I was doing. Um, and I'm not shy about it now because it's better to just admit that you're not good at something and have someone help you than just pretend like, Oh, everything's going great. Um, I have changed the perspective of how I look at business. It's almost like it's a, a puzzle or a game where, okay, how can I, at, at the end of the day, you got to make money. So, okay, this is what I have in front of me. This is the market. These are the general rules of the market. This is how retailers make decisions. And this is what con how consumers make decisions. How could I work within this market and these rules and make the most amount of money with what I have? And when I changed my perspective to think of it that way, not of me trying to force the market to adapt to the way I want to do things. So when I change it to this is how the market is, how can I adapt to make the most money within this market. And uh, I know that's kind of like a really broad statement, but if you apply that statement to your particular industry, like I was telling you some of the tips that have worked for us, a uh, low barrier of entry for retailers, because understand that they are very busy. Um, they don't make a ton of money and they need to maximize their time. They, they need to have a, a motivation to order from us. So we eliminate those barriers of entry. Um, in order to build a company, you have to have a line. So let's, let's add products that make sense to this line. And so, you know, with the cake mix, the ice cream mix, we've done the cookie mixes, some auxiliary things. And we might even branch into to cat products because there's quite a market for that. So it's like you have to build a company. 
And I didn't get this business person's mentality until after Shark Tank. And that was mostly because I kind of got a fire lit under my butt of having the sharks tell me some really good advice. Like you need to add, you need to make a line or uh, Mark Cuban called me a entrepreneur. He's like, why have you been in business for four years? And you only have like $28,000 in annual sales to show for it. I'm like, yeah, that is pretty sad. So <laughs> let's figure out how we can change that. Um, so it's, I, I just made a lot of mistakes and I, I was young. I was 21 when I started the business. Wow. And so I'll be celebrating my, uh, I'm 30 years old now. So I launched or I started it right before I turned 22. So, um, it just, I didn't know what I was doing. Um, and I didn't ask for help. And now I've learned, ask for help, pay attention to other people and adapt. Don't be pig headed and be like, well, we have a great product. So you should just like it. You should just buy it like the way that we want to sell it to you. No, that's not how it works. Well, you hear that a lot and it does work for some people. And I think people will look at, let's say Apple, they can create a market. They have the clout to do that. They will tell yes, you what you should buy. Right. Yeah. Um, and they will look at that and say, well, I should be able to do that too. Or that is a business lesson that I should take away is that if the market's not there, build it. <laughs> yeah. Right. And I guess it does work in, for some people, but you can definitely spend a lot of time and energy on that and throw a lot of money away and not get anywhere. You talked about funding briefly. You said you started on a shoestring. Four or five years later, you went on Shark Tank. Have you had any injections of capital other than what you've brought yourself? Or have you? has the company basically self-funded all your growth? Uh, the company and myself have funded all the growth. I have seen partnerships go very, very sour. And so um, having witnessed some of them almost firsthand, it's really... Um, made me not be interested in, in having an investor. So I've, I've just been really scrappy and very careful with my money. Um, in 2014, though, I almost went bankrupt because of a bad business decision that I made. And that's part of why I didn't really hit my stride until last year. We were doing great in 2013. And then 2014, I, like I said, almost went bankrupt. So I got a, I, I got interest from HEB grocery store, which is like largely in Texas. Um, they're interested in our products and I was speaking with my buyer and we had settled on puppy cake, making them a special product. This, these gift packs that had a bone shaped foil cake pan and one cake mix. And there was like crinkle paper there. They were adorable. And we had like this little die cut piece of paper in there. It says had some information about the product. They loved it. Like we're going to do this. And there's a lot of things you have to do whenever you set up with a large retailer, like HEB or Bed Bath & Beyond or Target. You have to set up in their internal system. And it's, it's a lot of paper, not necessarily paperwork, a lot of electronic stuff, a lot of going back and forth. So before I pulled the trigger on buying 5,000 of these, or I, think, I think it was 10,000, 10,000 of these cardboard gift packs from my box carton dis supplier at the time, I asked my buyer, I was like, are you sure? Like, are you ready for them? Like, I really need that PO. Like, we're not going to make your deadline unless I order these boxes today. He's like, don't worry. The PO is coming. There's still a few more steps on the internal system. So I can't give you a PO until we get through these final steps. He's like, but it's coming. It's going to be, uh, the total value of that purchase order was like $17,000. And, but I had to spend way more than that to make it because sure. I had to buy like 10,000 of these boxes. Yeah. You had minimums to order. So were, were, yeah. you, were you able to put in anything on the PO that says, you know what, we'll deliver X days after receipt of PO or 
they, well, they are they I, so adamant about getting their way where they kind of pound the table and say, "Hey, we're HEB. You have to do business our way." Well, what ended up happening is that the next week, um, I so I placed the order, trusting my buyer that he was really going to commit to this purchase order. And when we finished the order, because we worked furiously to finish this order on time, my buyer just fell off the face of the earth. Never submitted the purchase order. So legally, HEB, like they didn't do anything wrong. Um, he would not return any of my phone calls, would not return any of my emails. And I just got fresh. I mean, it's a frustrating situation to, to, as an entrepreneur to be in because you're like, you know, I wish you just would have been honest with me that you weren't real confident. I ended up talking to his boss later and she said, yeah, he got a little too excited and didn't have everyone's approval before he committed to that. And that's why it didn't actually become a purchase order. Because the next layer up said, no, we can't do it. So I had uh, like $15,000 worth of inventory just sitting in my, my loading dock, which meant all the cash. Like I borrowed money from my parents. Like I leveraged all my credit cards. Um, all of my cash to like pay myself and pay my employees was sitting in my loading dock. Tied up in inventory. So we did the best we could to unload it. And that was uh, another mistake I made with that particular order is that our profit margins were razor thin on that. And I got kind of greedy. Like I thought, well, I'll still make money as long as HEB buys this. Like I'm still going to make money. So at the end of the day, does it really matter if like I'm only making, what was it like 15% or something? It was like very little money. And it was more labor intensive than I had anticipated. So I spent the rest of the year just digging out from underneath that hole and later that year is when i launched the ice cream the first flavor of ice cream which helped to dig us out and then once i launched the rest of flavors at global pet expo and we you know got a, uh, an award for that i mean it was just like we coasted after that um the money just came in so much easier the sales just kept growing and like you know we were just expanding here taking the profits and just expanding our manufacturing because like we just couldn't keep up anymore were you able to sell some of those products that you had earmarked for HEV online or did you create a, a temporary product just to offload some of that inventory? We sold all of it. Like it was a, we were, we were motivated to, to do that product for HEV, but I, it was my intention to continue to sell it outside of that order with HEV. So my retailers loved it. So like we were selling them, we didn't have problems selling them to our regular channels at all. But we didn't have as many stores now as we did then. So, I mean, they were all buying it, but not at the volume that HEP was right. going to buy it. Right. And that's hard, too, because you created a custom product for that one customer. So, is the takeaway there um, that make sure you have more than one market or one more than one buyer for a product that you're creating? Well, one of the most important things I learned from that is never fill a purchase order until you have the purchase order. Because a purchase order is a legally binding document sure. you enter into with the person who submits it. So once they submit it, if they don't uh, pay you, I mean, you you have legal recourse to follow up that. I had no legal recourse because they never actually gave me the purchase order. It was just a verbal going back and forth. There was no number involved. So um, I learned that lesson the hard way. I will never, I have, will never fill a purchase order unless I have the physical purchase order. And the one time I did fill a purchase order, I ended up um, having to sue one of my customers because they went, uh, I don't know what was going on over there, but uh, they, they wouldn't pay their bill. I did get my money, 
in the end, but, um, that was painful too. Yes. Was it a big order? It wasn't even that big of an order. Like I was like, I'm not like, mm. it's not killing me here. Like, you know, the HEB one nearly killed yeah. me. I was like, I think I'm gonna have to go bankrupt. Cause like, I just, I'm going to make this work. Wow. But this one purchase order wasn't that big. It was less than $2,000. So it wasn't destroying us to not have that money, but you know, it's more the, the principle of, I'm like, I don't do these. I don't, you know, make products so that you can essentially steal them from me. You know, it's, yeah, sell yeah, them basically for free. Them stolen yeah. goods when you order them and don't pay for them. Wow. Thank you again for being so candid and sharing so much of your experience. Do you have parting advice or a parting thought for anyone that might be in your shoes back when you were 21, 22, and you were trying to launch your own product? I would advise that anyone who's launching a product to take advantage of the many, many resources available to them. There are small business development centers at almost all major universities or like there's one in every city and they're free. You can go talk to a mentor. They have great, great advice. Uh, they've seen a lot of things, a lot of different industries. There's hundreds and thousands of books that you can borrow from the library for free, read on eBay, blogs. The more you invest in figuring out how am I going to make money off of this? Like, really sit down and visualize. I have this box of cake mix. How do I sell? Like, how do I get to consumers? Um, the more time you spend really visualizing how you're going to make money, the more, the faster you will make money. And sometimes you might find out, you know, really there isn't a market here. Like I, I can only mix It's like cemeteries. You can only put so many plots in a cemetery. So you might find out that can't make money right. off of whatever business you're trying to go into. Very good point. So Kelly, can you talk a little bit about puppy cake and how people can find you? Where can we buy cake mix or ice cream? So puppy cake mix, especially dog treats, our best-selling products are cake mix for dogs and the ice cream mix for dogs. We use all natural human grade ingredients and manufacture everything here in our facility in Evans City, Pennsylvania. So everything you get, you're going to have high quality ingredients. And your dog's going to love it. You can buy our products on Amazon.com, on our website, puppycake.com, or find a store near you on puppycake.com. Um, just put in your zip code, and it'll show you thousands of stores that are across the United States. Excellent. Thanks again for coming on the show. Thanks again for sharing your highs and lows with us and, and sharing your wisdom. I really appreciate you coming on. You've been an awesome guest. Thank you so much. I had, it was a pleasure of mine. I love it. And that's all I've got for today. Thanks for listening. I put all the links that we've covered onto the show notes posted on theproductstartup.com slash episode 13. If you've brought your own physical product to market or you know someone that has, please let me know. Drop me a note by going to theproductstartup.com and clicking on Ask Philip. I'd love to have you on the show. If you like this episode and you want to see others like it or you even want to see something completely different, please shoot me a review on iTunes by going to theproductstartup.com slash review. I really appreciate your support and I'll see you in two weeks. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Product Startup Podcast with your host, Philip Valitza. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit theproductstartup.com. Your guide to getting there. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Product Startup Podcast, the show that teaches you what it really takes to bring your product to market and turn it into a big success. This podcast series is brought to you by Mako Design and Invent, 
the first firm in North America to provide global caliber end-to-end physical consumer product development to startups, inventors, and small product businesses. If you're looking for product development help on your invention, head over to macodesign.com. That's M-A-K-O design.com for a free consultation from one of Mako Design's four design studios from coast to coast. Thanks for listening and see you next time.